The book of Job. Excuse me while I open my iPad. Um, the book of Job is found in the middle of the Old Testament. And the book of Job is found in a list of books which is called Wisdom Literature. And Wisdom Literature consists of Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Um, it's not so much, these books are not so much about the nation of Israel. Um, it's not really about um, any kind of political or uh, um, you know, nation, what's going on. It's more about personal people's personal walk with God, their experience with God. Um, and they're called the book of wisdom for a reason. Proverbs teaches that obedience to God's word is the pathway to blessing. And disobedience to God's word is the pathway to suffering. This is also known as retribution theology. Meaning, if you do good, you get good. If you do bad, you get bad. And that's what a lot of the wisdom literature talks about. But, the book of Job introduces the idea that sometimes retribution theology doesn't always work. Sometimes the good get bad, and sometimes the bad get good. God will one day reward the good and reward the bad, because God will reward according to our deeds. But it might not happen in this life. Job does not seek to answer the question as to why we're suffering. Job is a book about wisdom, and instead of answering the question why, Job teaches us how. How to respond to a sovereign God in the midst of our suffering. Um, how do we respond to God in light of His sovereignty, that God is creator and ruler of everything? Um, James is the, considered the wisdom book of the New Testament. And James says this, James tells us to count it all joy when we meet with various trials. And that the purpose of the trials is for our sanctification. And then he says this in James 1.5. He said, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. And James is saying, let him ask for wisdom on how to respond to trials and suffering. So, wisdom teaches us how to respond and live in prosperity, and how to respond and live in poverty. It teaches us how to respond in the face of depression, in the face of sickness, in the face of broken relationships, in the face of wayward children. How many in this room have not experienced any of these things I just mentioned? Suffering, if you turn on the news and look around, it doesn't take too long to find out we live in a world consumed with suffering. Parents suffering over wayward children, over wayward husbands. Um, people suffering, racked with sickness, for years struggling with sickness. Um, I mean, the list goes on. We all know what suffering is. Um, the immediate question that seems to arise when we suffer is why? Why, Lord? Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to my child? I don't understand what good this suffering is going to bring about. It doesn't make any sense to me. Now we know there's different kinds of suffering. There's persecution. When you're persecuted, you understand why you're suffering. Okay, I'm suffering because I'm standing for Jesus Christ. I'm standing for my faith and I understand people hate God. So I understand that kind of suffering. Then there's suffering for punishment. I go out and get drunk. I drive my car and crash. I end up in jail. I don't really need to call a psychiatrist and say, Hey, why, why do you think I'm in jail? What's going on here? No, I'm in jail because I'm being punished and I'm suffering for my sin. But then there's a different kind of suffering. It's called affliction. Suffering for no known reason. Sickness, death, things that come out of left field what seems to be random suffering. This is what the book of Job is dealing with. This is what Pastor Scott Willis, 
and his wife Janet experienced on November 8th, 1984. Excuse me, let me just... On November 8th, 1994, Scott and Janet Willis were driving through the Milwaukee area on I-94 with six youngest children in a minivan. They had left Chicago a few hours earlier and were on their way to visit their eldest child. During the first part of the trip, they were singing and laughing together. But after they stopped for gas, they encouraged their children to get some sleep. Scott Willis describes what transpired on that November day. I was looking ahead at the road and I was alert. A little baby was behind us. Ben was behind us on the other side, and in the back, the four younger children were all buckled up and sleeping. I saw an object. It was a metal brace measuring six inches by 30 inches, approximately 30 pounds, I learned later. I thought it was one of the blocks that may have come off a flatbed truck. The car in front of me swerved, and I knew I couldn't miss hitting the object. I thought if I could hit it, on a tire, I might roll the car. It was a split-second decision. When I hit the object, the rear gas tank of the minivan exploded, taking the car out of control. I was able to grip the wheel and take the car out of the slide. We were sliding and flames were coming up from around the seat. It was nothing but a roaring flame coming up around both sides of the minivan. I was yelling to everyone, get out! Janet and I had to consciously put our hands into the flames just to unbuckle the seat belts and reach for the door handles. Janet fell out of the door while the car was still moving. Our son Benny was in the middle of the flames. His clothes were mostly burned off by the time he got out. The five youngest children who had been sleeping died instantly. No sound was heard by Janet or myself as we struggled to get out of the van. An unknown man took his shirt off his back and soaked Benny's wounds, and another beat out the burning flames on Janet's back. My son Benny died in intensive care around midnight. If possible, the tragedy got worse for Scott and Janet Willis. Initially, they had found some comfort in knowing that their children had died instantly. But months later, they learned that there were signs that some of the children struggled to get out of the van. Their son, Benny, lost consciousness at the scene, and they assumed that he passed away that night. But a hospital worker told them that he was alive and alert in the hospital. And he had asked for, the, for her to hold his hand, but she was not able to because of his fear burns. Then he asked her to pray with him. Then Scott and Janice Willis learned that the driver of the truck had obtained his license illegally because of, because of the corruption of Illinois Governor George Ryan. Licensing facilities accepting bribes that allow unqualified drivers to receive licenses. These bribes became part of Ryan's campaign fund. And here's the kicker. Ironically, Janet Willis had voted for Ryan that very morning of the accident. What a tragic story. We will learn later how these two godly parents responded to their tragedy. But first I want to go to the Bible and we want to read a story that's very similar to what the Willis's went through. A story of tragedy about a man from a place called Uz who experienced some of the probably most horrific suffering outside of Jesus Christ that we read about in the Bible. Um, a man who pretty much lost everything and understands what it is to suffer. So if we can just turn, Job chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz, whose name was Job, and that man was a blameless and upright one who feared God and turned away from evil. Uz, nobody knows where Uz is. It's somewhere, theologians, Nobody knows, but Job was not a Jewish person. Job was not part of God's covenant people, but he was a believer in Yahweh. He was a believer in God. So Job is like a universal figure who can relate to everybody. And it says that Job was a blameless man. Not sinless, but blameless. It means Job had integrity. 
It means Job, when he did things, he was conscious that God was watching. Even when nobody else was looking, Job had integrity. It says that he was upright. In other words, Job was on a level. When you did business with Job, you didn't have to check your receipt. <laughs> he was an honest man. And Job obtained all his wealth, not through conniving and, and cheating. He was an honest man and upright. And he feared God. Now fear, not I'm scared of God, but a holy reverent fear for God. But not just fear. This fear was an outward working of obedience to God because he loved and feared God and, and, and honored God. So it was a fear that caused obedience. And then it says this, he turned away from evil. He recoiled at the very thought of evil. It was, it was disgusting to him and it just made him sick and he turned away from evil. And so right off the bat, the book of Job gives us a picture that, hey, it's like a neon sign. Job is a righteous man. Job is a good guy. He's a righteous man. God declared Job righteous. He, he believed in God. He was declared righteous by faith in God. He was a believer just like we were, by grace. He believed in God. God declared him righteous. He was saved. He was a man of God. Job's prosperity, verse 3. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people in the East. Job was filthy rich. Job was rich. But he loved and served God. That's all I got to say. And also, Job was a model father. Job was concerned about his children. Job continually prayed for his children. He was concerned about their spiritual welfare and their walk. He was a man of prayer. Verse 4. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house, each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters and eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and they would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, If maybe that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And Job did this continually. Job's kids were godly kids. They weren't at parties getting drunk, swinging from chandeliers, wilding out, going nuts. Because look what Job said. Maybe in their hearts they cursed God. If they were just a bunch of rambunctious, rebellion kids, he would say, look, my kids are out of their mind. Lord, have mercy on them. But they were godly kids. They would meet at each other's house for their birthday. Now he had ten kids. If they were born every other once, you know, every month, that's ten months out of the year that Job was crying out for his children. And the Bible says he did this continually. So first we know Job is a righteous man. Job is a godly man. Job is a praying man. And Job is concerned for his children. Job is the candidate that we would pick for a man who shouldn't suffer. <laughs> Right? He's a man that shouldn't suffer. Retribution. If you do good, you get good. So if there's any poster child of a man who should be prosperous and not suffer, it's Job. Verse 6. We'll see how that changes real quick. Now there was a day when the sons of God came and presented themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro the earth, and from walking up and down. Here's a very strange scene. Job is like a play. Scene one closed, introduced Job. The curtain comes down. Scene two opens up. No longer in us. Now we're in heaven before the throne of God. And here are these sons of God. We can only assume that they're angels. Coming before God to get their marching orders. But it's strange because you look around the room and there's like this vagabond. This like crazy guy. He's twitchy. He's like... Nervous. He's, he's, not, he's restless. It's like, what is he doing here? And he's Satan. He comes among the sons of God. It's like he had access to God's throne. That's all, that's all the text says. Well, I'm not going to get any deeper. He was there. And listen to what happens. He says he's roaming to and fro. God said, where did you come from? God did not know where he came from. God wanted to get a dialogue on. Where were you? I was roaming around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Isn't that what Peter says the enemy does? 
He's a restless vagabond looking for someone to devour. And I'm sure he had his eye on Job before God even asked him. And God says this, Hey, Satan. Verse 8. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? So you've been going around the world trying to destroy people. Have you seen Job? And he says, There is no one like him on the face of the earth. Again, we hear these. He is blameless, upright, a man who fears God and turns away from evil. This is the second time we're going to hear this again. Three times this book says, gives us what Job looks like. It gives us a, a snapshot into his heart. Job is righteous. If anyone doesn't deserve to suffer, it's Job. Then Satan answers the Lord and he says this. Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, his possessions, and increased the land. Of course, Job serves you, God. You blessed him. Look at all the things that you've done. And Satan began to accuse God and accuse Job. This is what he's doing here. This is what Satan's saying. He's saying this. God, this whole relationship between you and Job... It's a sham. Job is a worship for hire. He's a mercenary. The only reason why Job is worshiping you is because you pay him off. Who wouldn't worship you? Who wouldn't praise you? You've protected his flock. You've increased everything he has. And this whole relationship, Lord, is a sham. Because you know what? You're not worth serving unless you pay somebody off, God. So Satan was coming against Job where he was declared righteous, and Satan was attacking God. And Satan was basically saying this, God is not worthy of being served unless He pays people off. So this whole relationship, I see right through it, God. It's a sham. Arrogance of Satan. Hmm? So, that brings something to my mind. What about us? Why are we serving God? I think sometimes it's good and healthy to step back and say, Lord, search the motives of my heart. Why am I serving you today, God? Am I serving you to get something from you? Is my whole relationship based on you because I'm looking for the future, for something you're going to give me here and now, for some kind of comfort, some kind of blessing? Does God bless us? Praise God He blesses us. Does God love us? Yes, He loves us. Does He give us material wealth? Yes, He does. But what is our motive for serving God? Are we serving God to get something? Or have we found like Job that God is sweet? That we serve God simply for who He is because we love Him. That's the only motive to serve God is because we love Him. The blessings come, sometimes they don't. But I'd rather have God than His blessings and I know you would too. So, God takes up Satan's challenge and look what Satan says. Verse 11, But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. It's pretty ironic. Why was Job so concerned about his children? Why was he so concerned that they would do something in their heart? That he prayed that they might what? Curse God. And here Satan accuses Job of being a hypocrite and saying, God, you take away his stuff, touch his prosperity, Touch his, his, his wealth, and he'll curse you right to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. God, and what we see here in this heavenly council, is God is sovereign. God is in control. God has this whole thing under control. Satan comes in, God initiates the conversation. God introduces Job. God gives the devil permission. God restricts Satan on how far he can go. God is sovereign over this whole incident that's going on. God is sovereign and in control. A lot of people have a wrong concept. Maybe not in here, but in the world. The opposite of black is... The opposite of day is, the opposite of God is, nothing. Satan is not the opposite of God. Michael the archangel is the opposite of Satan. The opposite of God 
It's an, it doesn't make sense. There's no such thing as an up. God is supreme. Satan is a created being. God created Satan. Satan is God's servant. He can only do what God lets him do. God told him, you can do this, no more. Satan has to obey. Satan can't just do what he wants. He's under authority. God lets him have... Martin Luther said it the best. He's a devil, but he's God's devil. And God has him on a short leash. But listen, we need to respect too. We don't want, we don't want to face the devil. But he is God's devil on a short leash. Now, did God give Job into Satan's hand? A lot of people have a problem with that. In fact, uh, I'm going to name one. Sorry. Joseph Prince. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Probably not someone you want to listen to. Joseph Prince said that when God told Satan, Satan, he's in your hand. What God was saying, listen Satan, he's already in your hand because he opened up a door and sinned and now he's in your hand. Well, it's funny. When you read through the text, I see no door. Joseph Prince doesn't let us know what the door is, so we're left thinking. But if you read with me, neon signs are blinking. Job is righteous. Job is righteous. Job is righteous. He's not suffering for any sin. It's evident in the text. And here is what happens next. Satan unleashes his attack. Verses 13. Now there was a day when the sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing, the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven. What is it? I don't know. Something that... It was the fire of God. Was it lightning? We don't know. But it burned up 7,000 sheep and consumed the servants, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people, and they are all dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Listen to Job's response. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and he worshipped. He didn't grab a guitar out and start worshipping. He, he shaved his head, a sign of deep mourning. He ripped his clothes and he fell on his face and he worshipped. And this is what he said. Listen to Job's word. Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. I want to come back to this text. I want to camp on this text and another one. I want to finish reading chapter 2. Round 2. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came and presented themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came and then presented himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, "From where, it's a repeat, where you come and where you going? And Satan said to the Lord, I'm going around to and fro the earth, walking about up and down it. And the Lord says to Satan, almost like sarcasm, Ha ha, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him. On the earth, a blameless man, upright, who fears God and turns away from evil. Listen to this. He still holds fast to his integrity. Although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Okay, skin for skin. All that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hands and touch his bone and flesh, and he will curse you to your face. It's like Satan, just he's relentless. He doesn't give up. When he attacks us, he, he waits for an opportune time to come back. And he's ruthless. He hates us. He hates God's people. Satan comes in like a flood. He's relentless. He doesn't stop. But thank God, greater is he that is in us 
than he that is in the world. And listen. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. Again, we see God's sovereignty and control. That God gave Satan permission. But then God said, here's the limit. You can touch him now. Spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery, which to scrape himself while he sat in ashes. Ashes, probably the city dump. Job lost everything. He was homeless now. He lost all his wealth. These sores were so disgusting and nasty. If you read further on in Job, it tells you exactly what they were. Job said, these sores were all over my body. They began to harden. Then they would break open and ooze out. They were infested with maggots. Um, his breath was foul and stench. He was in severe pain. He was itching crazy. He had severe nightmares. You know, you think I'm suffering, let me go to sleep. When he went to sleep, he had nightmares and woke up. This went on for months, Job suffered. Not a day, not a week, months, the Bible says. And so listen to what happens next. Verse 8. He took a piece of pottery, he began to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Verse 9. First the enemy is trying to get him to curse God, right? Now, the enemy comes after his wife. Now I'm just going to make a disclaimer right here. We need to go a little easy on Job's wife. She just lost ten kids too. Now she's watching her husband deteriorate in front of her eyes. And listen to what Job says. She says, then she said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. She's watching him suffer. But he said to her, listen, you speak as one of the foolish women. Not you are one of the, you speak, you're speaking like one of those foolish women. What got into you? So Job's wife, many try to say she was a devil advocate. I don't believe that. I believe she was a woman who lost 10 kids and was grieving watching her husband die. And she lost her faith for a moment. So we need to go easy on her. And listen to what Job tells her. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. I want to concentrate on two verses that I think are very important here. Chapter 1, verse 21. Naked I came into from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Was Job wrong for attributing the death of his children, everything that he lost, to God? Who was ultimately responsible for Job's trial? Was it Satan? Was it the Chaldeans? Was it the Sabaeans? Was it the storm? Was it the lightning? Look what Job said. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Another prosperity preacher, you shouldn't listen to, Frederick Price, said, the Bible does say that, but Job was wrong. <laughs> what Job was saying that is, he said that, but look, Job, and he's right about one thing, Job wasn't privy to the heavenly council. We are. But you know, Job didn't know that Satan came before God. We know that. Job didn't know that. Job was hanging out and one day all this happened. He didn't know Satan approached God. He didn't know God held him up as a man that he can trust. And so he said, well, see, Job said that because he didn't know who else to blame, so he just blamed God. So if that's true, that means Job was wrong for attributing it to God because then Job would have been wrong for saying God did it when God didn't. But there's a problem because if you look at verse 22, what does it say? In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Wait, Job said the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. But then verse 22, he said, God did not, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Interesting. Creates a problem, doesn't it? <laughs> but it's not a problem because we're going to see something. Then in, verse, in chapter 2, look what he says here in verse 10. He says, after you speak like a foolish woman, shall we not receive good from God and shall we not also receive evil from God? Evil from God? God hates evil. Doesn't God hate evil? 
How could we receive evil from God? Well, this is a little troubling word that should have translated better. It doesn't mean moral evil. It means calamity. It's not that God is morally evil. We know God is morally good. This is more like calamity, which is not good or evil. A tornado is not good or evil. But how do we reconcile if it was God or not? Well, I'm going to say three times the Bible attributes Job's suffering to God. This is good news. Don't be scared right now. I know this sounds like, what? But this really is good news. And trust me, you'll hear why. Three times the Bible attributes Job's suffering to God. Job 1.21 The Lord gave, and the Lord takes away. Job 42.11 At the end of the book of Job, after God restores everything that Job had, after Job's friends who, and family, where we don't see them when he's suffering, but at the end they all come around again, they say this to him. And it says, And they showed him sympathy and comforted him, talking about Job, for all the evil that the Lord brought upon him. And then finally, we see God Himself in Job chapter 2, verse 3. And He said this to the devil, He still holds fast to His integrity, although you incited Me against Him to destroy Him without reason. God, a lot of people want to protect God. God would never do that. God would never do that. God goes on record to say, I did it. I did it. I destroyed him without reason. But we're going to learn, why would God do that? Was God acting evil? Was God really destroying Job? How do we make sense of this? How did Scott and Janet Willis respond to the death of their children. Listen to this. We believe children are a heritage of the Lord. We thank God for the six precious children, four rascally boys, a sweet girl so much like her mother, and a baby just beginning to smile and grow. We understand that they were given to us by the Lord. And we understand that they were not ours. They were His, and we were just stewards. And so God took them back he is the giver and taker of life. We must tell you that we hurt and sorrow as any parent would for their children. The depths of pain are indescribable. The Bible expresses our feelings that we sorrow, but not without hope. So who's responsible for Job's suffering? I have an explanation. And I think it's going to help us to understand when we go through suffering, actually what's going on. And we're going to get into a little theology right now, and then we're going to close. And there's a doctrine, and I'm going to explain to you, it's very easy. The doctrine of concurrence. When something happens concurrently, what does that mean? Same time. Two actions happening, two cars drove down the street together. They concurrently drove down the street. Right? So, the best way to explain this is to turn to Genesis 45, verses 5 through 8. Genesis 45, 5-8. I'm just going to give you a quick overview. This is about Joseph. Everyone knows the story about Joseph, right? Joseph was Jacob's favorite son. He made him a coat, many colors. He had a dream, told his whole family they're going to worship him, and they hated him. Yeah. Little kids just don't know how to be quiet sometimes. When God showed they wouldn't follow him. So here's the story now. Joseph's father says, go check on your brothers. And Joseph runs out to check on his brothers, and they see him coming from a distance. And they're like, oh, here comes the dreamer. Let's kill him. That's how much they hated Joseph. So they took Joseph and they threw him in a pit. They wanted to kill him, but Judah says, Hey, wait, let's not kill him. Let's make a buck. Here come some slave traders. Let's sell him into Egypt as a slave. So they took Joseph out of the pit, sold him into slavery, took his coat, dipped blood, went back, and hey, Dad, look, a lion got him. He's dead. End of story. Years later, there's a famine in the land. Guess who goes to Egypt to get food? Joseph's brother. Guess who's number two now in Egypt? Joseph. Joseph meets his brother. Look what he says. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. Listen. For God sent me before you to preserve life. 
The famine has been in the land these two years, and there are five years in which there will be neither plow nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you, a remnant on earth, and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. But God. Now, many years later, Jacob dies. And so like, okay, Joseph's going to get us now. Dad's dead. He's going to kill us now. So look what they say. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil, all the evil that what? We did to him. So they went and sent the message to Joseph. This is not sincere. They're just conniving. Look, they don't want to get beaten, you know. Your father gave us command. No, he didn't. Before he died, say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sins because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive their transgressions of the servants of God, of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him. And behold, we are your servants. Listen to this. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am in the place of God. Now listen. As for you, you meant it evil against me. Did the brothers not admit that they did evil? But God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Hear Joseph's words. You didn't do this. It was God who sent me here. You didn't do this. It was God who sent me before you. You meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. Here is what that does not mean. It does not mean that God is sitting back on the sidelines watching Satan wreak havoc. And he can't stop him. The best he can do is maybe step in and kind of clean it up a little. No. It doesn't mean that God was watching Satan create evil. And they said, I'm going to come in and take that evil and turn it around. That's not what it means. What it means is this. God caused Joseph's brothers to do exactly what they did. Because God's purpose was to get Joseph to Egypt to get him second in charge so that he can save a nation and the seed of the Christ that was coming through could be preserved. God was doing it and his motives were good. Though Joseph's brothers were doing it for evil, God used their evil to accomplish his good will. Kind of like Job with Satan. God was doing it for good to work something in Job because he blessed him at the end and Job learned a lot. But the enemy was doing it for evil. One more. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And then we will close. Acts chapter 2. Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. And listen to what Peter says when he's preaching to the Jews. Men of Israel, verse 22, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did among him in your midst and you yourselves know. Listen, this Jesus delivered up according to what? To the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Okay, who killed Jesus? God planned this beforehand. It was God's definite plan. But yet, Peter says, you killed him by the hands of wicked men. So was it the Romans? Was it the Jews? Or was it God? Both. God's purpose was good. Is the crucifixion of Jesus good? Yes, it's called good news. It's the good news of the gospel that Christ took the place of sinful people. And now he offers salvation to those who come and trust and repent. The wicked, the, the just for the unjust. So God's plan was good. But the Jews and Romans, their plan was evil. So it was God and man doing it together. God's purpose was good. Man's purpose was evil. Who's responsible? God and man. Again, Acts 4.28. I'm going to read just the last part of the verse here. The disciples are threatened saying, Stop preaching in the name of Jesus. They said, we got to obey God. We can't. We have to obey. So they begin to pray. And they pray. And they, say, they, they start off their prayer. Oh, sovereign Lord, who makes the heavens and earth. Blah, blah, blah. But then verse, down to verse 28, he says this. Actually, verse 27. I'll start here. He says, um, let me read the whole thing. 
And when, they, and when they heard it, they filled their voices together to God and said, lifted their voice, Sovereign Lord, who has made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything that's in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and His anointed. For truly in the city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. Who predestined it? God. Who planned it? God. Who was responsible for the death? Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Jews, the Romans. God was responsible. The doctrine of concurrence. God working the enemy Working. God's purposes are for good. The enemy's purpose is for evil. I mean, brothers and sisters, it can't be no clearer than this. That God takes full responsibility what happened to Job. God takes full responsibility. But God's purpose was not to destroy Job. It was to make Job a better man. God owns everything. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He's sovereign. He has a right to do with His as He pleases. And we're His servants. And God blesses us and He loves us, but sometimes God calls us to suffer. And in closing, I just want to say this. We only have two views. Either God's sovereign 100% or He's not. And we know that God is sovereign. And listen to this quote. Abraham Kuyper, he's a famous Dutch theologian, and he rightly said this. There is not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not say, mine. He is sovereign. Closing. The story of God's revelation to human suffering does not find its fulfillment in the book of Job. Job suffered. You can study that book. You can tear it apart. You can get a magnifying glass. You're not going to find out an answer of why Job suffered. The Bible is silent. In fact, there's no book in the Bible that explains to us why righteous people suffer. It's not in there. God doesn't want to answer that question to us now. But we have a better answer. The book of Job does have an answer, does not have an answer to the problem of suffering. Job teaches us a very important principle, though. And here's the principle. That God is sovereign over all evil and suffering. That's good news. And I'm going to share why. But I don't want you to walk away today armed with a principle. A principle is nice. Especially when it's true. When someone is suffering, what he or she needs, what you need, what I need, is not a principle. We need a person. We need a person we need someone we can pour out our heart to. We need someone who understands us. And God does just that. He offers us a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. In order to gain a deeper understanding of how God deals with suffering, we must look past the Old Testament to the New Testament, to the person and work of Jesus Christ, the true sinless suffering servant who died on the cross. For the purpose of the book of Job is to point us to the greater than Job. The only true innocent sufferer, Jesus Christ. To understand that, hey, listen, the righteous do suffer for no reason of their own. That's what Christ did. He suffered not for His own sins, but for our sins. God entered our world of suffering in the person of Jesus Christ. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus, unlike Job, voluntarily submitted Himself to the horrors of an unspeakable suffering so that sinful and wicked rebels like you and me would one day be able to escape the ultimate suffering, the eternal conscience torments of hell. God's answer to suffering is found in a person, Jesus Christ, who is the wisdom of God. Remember, Job is a book of wisdom and it teaches us how to respond to suffering. The only right response to suffering is to put our faith and trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ who suffered in our place. 
Jesus' death on the cross does not end our suffering, but it gives meaning to our suffering. Listen, we're going to suffer. We're either going to suffer with Jesus, or we're going to suffer without Jesus. But as you're walking on God's green earth, this beautiful planet, it's not so beautiful at times. You're going to suffer. If you're not a Christian today, we would ask you then to repent and put your faith in the one who hung on a tree and suffered in your place. The one who took the wrath of God for you. You have a choice. You can either pay your own way or let Christ pay your way. Your way is eternal torment in hell. That's the payment for your sin. Christ's way is the free gift of eternal life. If we repent, acknowledge that we're sinners and turn to Him and say, God have mercy on me. I believe that you died in my place. If you're a Christian today, then we call you to embrace suffering. Not such a pleasant message, is it? Embrace suffering? Why would I want to embrace suffering? Suffering is good for you. If suffering was not good, God would remove it. For God says, For He causes all things to work together for good to those who are called according to His purpose. So all things work together for good. How many misunderstand that verse? That means all good things work. No, no. God causes all things. All things include suffering. God causes all things to work together for good to them who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Why embrace suffering? Because the only choice is to complain and run around asking why and become bitter and miserable. Why embrace suffering? We are called to suffer with Christ. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in His steps. God is sovereign over your suffering, and He has a glorious purpose for it. Our sufferings are not random. They have a purpose. I'll end with a story of a mother and daughter who both experienced grief of losing their husbands within eight months of each other. On September 24, 1557, Aaron Burr, the son-in-law of Jonathan Edwards, the famous 18th century pastor and theologian, unexpectedly died. He was 42 years old. It was two days before his public commencement as the first president of Princeton University. During this tragic time, his wife Esther wrote this letter to a family friend. Your most kind letter of condolence gave me inexpressible delight. And at the same time, set open afresh all the avenues of grief. And again, probed the deep wound of death has given me. My loss, shall I attempt to say how great my loss is? God only can know. And to Him alone would I carry my complaint. Had God not supported me by these two considerations, he just lost a husband, by showing the right he has to his own creatures to dispose of them when and in what manner he pleases. And secondly, by enabling me to somehow follow my husband beyond the grave into the eternal world and there view him in unspeakable glory and happiness. I should not long before this have been sunk among the dead and been, and been covered with clouds of the valley. God has wise ends in all that He does. This thing did not come upon me by chance. And I rejoice that I am in the hands of such a God. Less than eight months later, and we're closing, Aaron Burr, after Aaron Burr's death, Jonathan Edward. Esther's father also died. So she lost her husband, now her father. On April 3rd, 1758, Sarah Edward, Jonathan's wife, wrote to her daughter Esther, My dear child, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore His goodness that we had him so long, but my God lives, and he has my heart. Oh, that a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are all given to God, and there I am, and there I love to be. Suffering, 
sets our sights on the world to come. It takes our eyes off of the temporal, shallow, futile, foolish little trinkets the world offers us for any kind of hope and pleasure. When we suffer, we realize who's suffering and looking at their bank account. Who's in a hospital dying? What man who's a millionaire is dying and wouldn't give all his money for another day? Suffering, when we're here, sets our mind on the eternal and takes our eyes off the temporal. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18 So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this momentary, light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things which are seen, but the things which are unseen. For the things which are seen are transient, but the things which are unseen are eternal. How many people are just wasting their lives living for transient things that do not fill and do not satisfy. And when you're dead, somebody else is going to take them. But Paul said, listen, you're suffering. What you're going through, God is preparing you for eternity. What we suffer now, He's preparing a glorious future in eternity. No matter how severe your trial may be today, when compared to the glory that will be yours, when we stand face to face and see Jesus, it's all going to be worth it. Let's pray. Hallelujah, Father. Lord, we thank you, God. We thank you that you are sovereign, Lord. We thank you that when we go through trials and temptations, when we go through suffering, you're not sitting in some corner watching as the enemy comes in and